and assalamu alaikum this is ramal hashmi and welcome to a new episode of the new wave global today i have with me uh, ahmed nareez rana who is an economist and is currently consulting with the world bank uh, ahmed has had experience in trade investment and competition and um, he has had previous experience with the undp and has also uh, been a, an advisor for the government of punjab thank you for joining us nareez uh, thank you so much ramal uh, looking forward to the discussion So uh, we've come here today because we want to talk about the trifecta of you know the challenges that Pakistan has been experiencing. There's political unrest. There's an economic crisis that has come to sort of you know grip the nation. Economically, we understand that we are dealing with severe inflation, which is running at over thirty thirty percent, which is a fifty-year high, and it has made basic livelihood for the poorest of the nation, which comprise about one third of our population. um harder than ever and other than that we have a declining currency and critically low financial reserves and all of this is posing a very significant challenge for sustainability of the country since that it's because of the um the high the china that is you know it's charging high interest for its loans and um we're not able to pay that and some say that it's somehow obviously it's too early Say whether CPEC will drain Pakistan's, you know, um, debt, or whether it will provide future opportunity for growth. But the situation cannot be denied. Which, which sort of brings me to my first, um, you know, sort of a deeper question uh, to you, Nuraiz. Um, what has, you know, how did the country end up here? And what is your, you know, what is your understanding to the background to all of this? And how does, what does this economic crisis mean for the majority of the people of Pakistan? Uh, well, thank you, Ramal, for posing such an elaborate question. I think it really uh, warrants a deep dive into what the core issues are, and I think a lot is being said, a lot in is being spoken of of why we are where we are, and uh, and I I wouldn't want to spend too much talking about that, but I think it is very imperative to highlight those issues and how I perceive them. So let me take you back to the 1950s. So it's closer to the time when Pakistan uh, gained independence. Pakistan was formulated back then. compared to 1950 versus 2022 the volume of global trade has increased by over 4500% so that is more than 45 times what the value was back in 1950 at the time of pakistan's creation and if you kind of zoom in a bit more into that you will notice that majority of that growth in the volume of global trade happened between 1980 and 2022 so in 1980 the volume of global trade the amount was around 2000 billion dollars today it's 25 trillion dollars and what has happened within these last 3 to 4 decades was one of the the, the big things that happened in 1978 china uh, you know our friendly neighbor adopted an open and reform policy where they opened up their economy uh, they became more liberalized in 1991 India adopted economic liberalization they too opened their economy and at that time India was also engaged uh, you know it was it was involved in an IMF program similar to that of Pakistan but they went through major reforms and after that they never felt the need to go back to the IMF and today if you look at India their foreign reserves stand at 600 billion dollars China over the course since it since you know the country opened its economy it was able to lift 800 million people out of poverty uh, its gdp has averaged over 9% since since then per year 
So this highlights the impact that global trade and opening up your economy has had on the world. And on some countries who've been able to really optimize on those growth objectives. But the key difference here is that when the world was opening up, global value chains were integrating very strongly with each other. There were certain countries who had, who, who I would say were visionary enough or who invested in low cost manufacturing, who uh, increased their capacity building productive capacities with the idea that they wanted to tap and capture global markets. So they felt that there's a consumer market beyond their national boundaries and they should really capitalize on what they have to offer. And this is where Pakistan stumbled a bit because we've read this in our economic history books that Pakistan was one of the leading countries in South Asia in terms of GDP growth, the economy was flourishing, but then it uh, halted for a bit and then it has been declined. And the reason is because when the world was opening up and there was such an exchange of global goods and trade and whatnot was happening around, Pakistan, rather than doing the same what India and countries like China did, Pakistan became an import-oriented economy. So we, rather than enhancing our productive capacities, we started buying goods in large commodities. And now when we look at it today, the same pattern was followed through by various governments who came in through the 80s, 90s, 2010s, and 20s now as well, that Pakistan is producing less, has less to export in the world, is dependent on imported goods, even the raw materials that it needs for the production of certain goods that we do produce in the country are being imported. So over time, a huge trade deficit came into being and a huge balance of payment crisis arise because of that. And now we've very much been drained of all our foreign reserves. And when a country loses its competitiveness, it becomes dependent on bilateral loans, on multilateral partners, on other countries to bail, it, to bail itself out. It uh, loses that sense of autonomy that we see in the form of IMF and other related programs. But more importantly, it loses the capacity to pay. And that is what has been the crux of Pakistan's issue. So everything that we're importing, and those are some very significant goods. For example, we import energy, we import oil, we import petroleum, but we don't have, uh, you know, there's no way to circumvent it. So all in all, what has, this has completely drained Pakistan of its, you know, foreign reserves. And that is the bigger major issue at the moment. And when we talk about the currency crisis, currency works in a very similar fashion. So the more your country is, the more your currency is in demand, the higher its value is in simpler layman terms. And the more you demand a foreign currency, the more strengthened the other currency becomes in comparison to yours. And because when you don't have goods to trade, to sell, then obviously your currency is not demanded as such. You know, there's no value of PKR because other countries, they don't, need, they don't feel the need to buy much from Pakistan because Pakistan does not have much to sell. So automatically, your currency starts depreciating, it starts losing its value. And that has a multifold impact on Pakistan because A, uh, it tends to uh, highlight even more inflation in the country. Because like I said, you know, when we are importing so, so many goods, we're importing oil, we're importing energy, we're importing our staples, we're importing wheat. 
And when we're putting stuff, usually in global trade, you use the USD to pay. And the USD becomes much more strengthened in, compares, in comparison to the Park Rupee. And uh, therefore, when the price of USD goes up, the price of everything in Pakistan goes up. That is, again, very much linked to the currency crisis, how it's linked to your trade deficit and how that is linked to the inflation in the country. Uh, thank you for giving us a rundown, Norais, because uh, I'm actually glad you mentioned this um, since, you know, the very onset, we've sort of had like a Western orientation. And and even now we see that in, in IMF's manifestation in many ways. And um, even in the beginning of this, 2023, we saw that Pakistan uh, was facing severe economic crisis and we were almost on the brink of default. And the IMF's, I understand that IMF's 2019 loan program, it had stalled due to this um, uh, Pakistan's perceived lack of, you know, reform commitment, which led to a halt in loan disbursements. And then ultimately, we saw sharp declines in foreign exchange reserves, uh, like you mentioned. And then at some point, we were only covering about two weeks of imports um, amidst all, you know, the debt repayments that were happening um, simultaneously. So, um and then to avoid that, we saw that, you know, Pakistan started imposing import restrictions, uh, which caused economic shutdowns of, of its own. And then we saw uh, commodity shortages of very important staples that, you know, like energy and wheat. And 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 then we saw um, record high inflation. Um, and then and then we saw that, you know, by by June, uh, IMF introduced a three billion dollar standby arrangement as as um, as an emergency measure which was then supported by Pakistan's uh, Middle Eastern partners and then China. So while we can say that, you know, the default risk may have receded, um, it we can't deny that IMF imposed conditions for um, structural adjustments. They do have consequences of their own, you know, such as the withdrawal of subsidies from fuel and energy sectors. It has resulted in certain policies like, you know, rising electricity prices. And then, like you mentioned, our currency is, somehow in a free fall, and that has a direct bearing on our um, inflation as well. So um, as far as I can see, IMF and its conditions, they've sort of exacerbated the current crisis, and it's focused on preventing that foreign liability default. It's it's led to policies like, you know, rising electricity prices. So um, my question is, you know, what is, uh, why is Pakistan still, you know, the 23rd time around, why is it still so insistent with this program and why do you think that the governments they're so they're reluctant to defy the IMF instead they would go for negotiations and uh, you know negotiations instead and then most importantly do you think that um, institutions like the IMF can they truly help countries like Pakistan or do you think that there can be alternative paths to um, economic stability that challenge the very notion of this neoliberal dependence that we've had that we've had since the beginning of time. Well, thank you so much for bringing that up, Ramal, because I think that is very crucial to address. What we usually tend to do in Pakistan and actually everywhere in the world, everyone does, every human, we tend to picture the world as black and white as much as we can, so we can avoid the gray areas. And the way the, the IMF program works or the IMF as an institution works, that is what we tend to do as well. The critics would tend to highlight that IMF hasn't done much good for Pakistan. Pakistan is going back to the IMF for the 23rd time. And... Uh, this has never helped Pakistan flourish economically ever before, and there's unlikely uh, that it would help Pakistan going in the future. To some degree, there's, 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 there's a level of truth to it, to how I see it. 
because you need to understand, uh, all of us need to understand that the purpose of the IMF is not to help a country stand up on its own two feet, you know, in simpler terms, economically. How the IMF works is the IMF, you know, as an institution, it tends to help country who are facing short-term liquidity constraints. So Pakistan uh, needs to import, you know, import is a crucial lifeline. We need to import wheat, as we've seen in the past few years, we need to import oil because we do not produce oil. And that is our most prominent form of energy consumption. But when you do not have the means to pay that, you don't have that sort of liquidity, IMF, the purpose of the IMF would be to come in, bail a country out, help them for a period of, with the understanding that it's a short-term liquidity loan. And so that the country can address its structural issues in the meantime, get its house in order, and then it can be self-sufficient. By that, I mean that it will not need to rely on the IMF. So when we look at India, and the example that I quoted earlier on was that India was going through a similar crisis back in 1991, when they had to go to the IMF, they implemented you know, major reforms that were uh, advised, suggested by the IMF. But in the same time, they made some own rectifications and they were able to build, build the economy from ground up, from within, and they never, there was no need for them to go back to the IMF ever again. And today, their foreign reserves are at $600 billion, where we are negotiating for loans as little as $3 billion, $4 billion, $1 billion, so on and so forth. So when we look at that, you know, we, IMF doesn't sound too bad. So because IMF extends you a short-term loan, it also looks at ways on how, it needs to secure ways on how it will be able to uh, uh, you know, get that loan back. So it levies structural adjustment programs. And those structural adjustment programs are like bookkeeping programs. So where it will tell you that here you need to get more taxes, you need to, you know, levy a certain amount, you need to, you know, this is how you need to tax your economy. These are the, these are certain gaps. Uh, this is where you need to take austerity measures. You need to reduce your fiscal expenditure, your spending that you're doing. How do you need to address your internal debt, your public debt, things like that, that would help the country in, in that short term to medium term, kind of balance its account and that will be able to repay the loan. But for an economy to actually get out of the cycle or that dependency on IMF, there's a lot that needs to be done. You know, you need to invest in human capital. You need to invest in education. You need to have a long-term policy plan that looks at the next 10, 15, 20 years and so on and so forth. And what we've seen in, in Pakistan is that there's no consistency. Whenever there's one government replaces the other, there's a whole new uh, complete package of policies that they bring along with and they denounce the previous ones. For example, during Ishaq Das time, he had uh, uh, pegged the, 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 the value of the Pak rupee. So he had artificially tried to control it. There was a fixed exchange rate. I'm not saying it's good or bad, I'm just highlighting. When PTS government came into play, they replaced it with the freely floating exchange rate. Again, not saying good or bad, but just highlighting. Then Isagda came back again, and he again tried to arbitrarily fix the exchange rate. So this is just one very minor example of how there's no consistency in how we internally implement reforms, we continue with our policies, and as long as we don't get that house in order, our house in order, because we won't be able to see any long-term results. Rather, we'll keep on 
accumulating more and more debt, either whether that is if that is from the IMF or either that is from our bilateral partners, whether that's from the UAE, from the China. So that mix of policies needs to be created in-house, needs to be created internally, and more importantly, it has to be in, implemented. And that has to be along various facets, facets that IMF may not even have the expertise to implement. You know, we're looking at social policies, we're looking at, uh, you know, ways on how we can uh, investment climate policies, to say so. So as long as that is not in place, just those $3 billion or those $4 billion A, are really not going to help Pakistan. Secondly, it is uh, when, when we are giving market failing subsidies, when we are not really tapping into a tax base, we are only pressurizing uh, the working, the professional, the middle class, uh, you know, when there's such such a huge extent of informal economy, no IMF, no World Bank, no one else can come and help Pakistan. And for us to just blame them, I think um, that is very narrow-minded and that is kind of unjustified because that is a way of us uh, just putting the blame, just transferring the blame on an other entity who may be even, who may be trying to help us. And just to add to what you've already said, I uh, where sort of Pakistani authorities have, you know, time and time again, the different governments that have replaced the the preceding one, they've sort of downplayed the potential of regional stakeholders, sort of pulling them in different directions. And uh, even now, you know, we see these competing interests between UAE, Saudi Arabia, and China, and we think that. Uh, Pakistan can somehow manage the cross-cutting and at times very conflicting imperatives that with different countries. And how it manages to sort of clear that out, that is still um, unclear. And there's a little assumption that the investments that are coming in things uh, CPEC and you know the two will not somehow compete with each other um, and I think that's that's something that we've seen since you know the beginning that we've had multiple investments and multiple projects that are set up and um, somehow they tend to you know sort of um, offset each other so and then obviously we've uh, we have different we continue to believe that we have to somehow balance between Chinese expectations and and the United States so um but anyway, looking ahead, what for for this economic crisis, you know, what do you think can be the potential solutions that we can anticipate for Pakistan's uh, future? And, and how might this very complex situation it continue to uh, evolve in the next coming uh, months? Yeah, Raman, so let, let me first uh, answer the first half of your question. And unfortunately, that is the truth that when you have... Uh, when you're very constrained economically, when you do not have the resources, then you tend, you cannot exert the kind of autonomy that uh, any other country who have that economic power can do so. So you have to be very, not careful, but you have to navigate through those, those kind of, those, those tough waters and see what can be done. But even in doing so, if uh, the negotiations are done in a thoughtful manner, ensuring that the sovereign interests of the country are paramount, uh, things can very well be managed. And like uh, you mentioned China, so Pakistan over the years, through the course of the CPAC, uh, accumulated $62 billion in debt from the IMF. 
So it's not just about the loan that we accumulated. And uh, I've, I've done some research and I also spoke with Michael Kugelman on this particular topics a while back as well, that the terms of agreements, the interest rates, and more than the interest rates, uh, the, the non-economic aspects of CPEC, I think were quite, uh, had an adverse impact on Pakistan. For example, when we talk about foreign direct investment, FDI, uh, we do not just look at the amount that FDI brings. We also look at the other externalities, the positive externalities in terms of skills transfer, in terms of engaging with the with the local population. So when the CPEC came into being and we look at the Gavada port, majority of the, the engagement, the financial engagement was being led, was being done by Chinese banks, by Chinese firms, in, uh, financial firms. The construction work, the setting up work was being done by Chinese construction companies. The technical work was being done by Ch Chinese engineers. So there was nothing that Pakistan's local population could benefit in terms of uh, skills transfer, you know, in terms of greater private sector firms engagement in that particular project. And more so, even the interest rates. So everything was being done and done by China, but Pakistan was the ground for them. So in such a case, the host country has stands very little to benefit from. And that is a very crucial point to make. When the local population of Gawada itself is marginalized, does not, cannot reap the benefits of the Gawada port that was this huge visionary port that would connect Pakistan with, that would actually not even connect Pakistan, China, Pakistan, China with the Middle East and with the Gulf. When the local population cannot stand to benefit from it, then you cannot expect people who are further away to benefit, to reap the same amount of benefits that the Chinese counterparts are. So when we are negotiating that deal, it is very important and whosoever these deals are being negotiated with, it is very important for Pakistan to make sure that the terms and agreements beyond just the financial aspect are done in a manner that can, you know, really help the country grow from a sustainable development perspective and obviously from an economic perspective too. And similarly, when we look at India, India is has trade ties with Russia, it has trade ties with the US, it has trade ties with China, even though, you know, there are conflicts going on between China and India, but still they are, you know, they, they are humongous trade partners with each other. And Pakistan can replicate the same model. It's not just about that. The first thing is that we need to, you know, be, just, just, just focus on ourselves first. And that is where, uh, you know, the second part of your questions, question comes to, where you mentioned what are the various solutions that can be implemented. So it's not in one priority order, particular order. And I would like to stick to just the economic aspects. I, you know, obviously you need to, there's social aspects too that you need to address political aspects too, but like economically, A, we have a huge informal economy, like apparently about 60 to 70% of our economy that happens within the informal sector. So first of all, we need to bring them into the, the compass of uh, formalization. And when you do so, there are various other benefits. Actually, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a very robust research which points out the fact that activity by informal firm tends to impede activity by formal firms by up to 25%. So the lesser the informal firms are, even your formal private sector will, 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 will get improved, will, will, will strengthen. Secondly, when you have less informality and there's more formalization, the government is able to generate more in tax revenue because obviously you know, they're able to monitor 
various, uh, so much part of the economy that usually just goes under the carpet or operates under the shadow. So there's greater tax collection. So it also addresses one of Pakistan's paramount problem where we do not have enough to satisfy, you know, our, our, our spending and we can address our fiscal deficit by, by doing so. Then we need to implement uh, taxation reforms. And that too is very doable. We are living in, you know, it's the 21st century. We have access to digitalization. There are various digital tools that have been implemented. Again, just within South Asia, if we look at it, where they've been able to monitor, uh, inspect and evaluate various mechanisms and bring various people, various groups, various firms, various parts of the sector uh, within the tax break, break by doing so. It, and there are other tools that can be employed as well. There's a carrot and a stick uh, methodology where you give, you either give incentives or you improve your enforcement one way or the other. So that the burden that the common man is facing at the moment that Pakistan tends to do is by levying indirect taxes. What means what we're seeing in the form of the energy crisis, you know, you can uh, avoid those scenarios where the common man does not have to face the brunt of you know, of these missed policies to say so, or the IMF programs. The other thing that I want to highlight is that we need to get away with all the market failing subsidies. For example, we subsidize fuel, we tend to subsidize fuel, but in doing so, what we're really doing is that we are draining our foreign reserves at an amplified phase because fuel is something that we do not produce. This is something that we buy from the rest of the world. And we already do not have uh, you know, we have faltering reserves. We do not have the U.S. dollar with which we can buy. And when you're subsidizing that, then it's just a recipe for disaster. Additionally, at number four, I think we need to look towards privatization. A lot of our state-owned enterprises, firms like you know the steel mill, used to the PIA, and the, uh, our other energy-making houses they all that come within the packet of SOEs, they are bleeding the economy. They are not functioning effectively, efficiently. There's extra workforce. Uh, they're continuously year after year, they are operating in losses and your government, your country does not have the funds to kind of bail them out every other time. They need to be privatized. They need to work, operate of, in a how an efficient money-making profit-oriented private organization tends to function. And in the end, very importantly, I think we need to strengthen our investment climate. That is, we are living in the world where governments do not create jobs. They don't need to create jobs. What they need to do is create the right incentives such that private sector can flourish, business making or you know, business enterprises of various forms related with various sectors can come in, they will hire you know, workers, they will invest, you know, it could be domestic funding, it could be foreign funding, whatsoever. But the private sector really needs to step up and it can only step up when the enabling environment is conducive enough for do, to do so. And this is where the role of the government comes in, where they need to, by a set of de jure or de facto rules and policies, legislations, uh, doing business policies, they really need to support that enabling environment. Uh, and we need to really make sure that we go away or tend to incentivize non-productive capital-oriented sectors like the real estate. 
and it all comes down to incentives and i say that again because when as an investor you only get to pay someone somewhat between 0 to 1% on a land holding versus you get to pay 29 to 30% if you set up a business uh, corporation then obviously you will invest in land holdings you will invest in real estate and that has been one of the crux of pakistan's issue because you cannot export real estate it does not generate much value that can be consumed by the global world and uh, it's it's just a non productive asset as as simply put so if we are able to get these things in order and it's not something which takes a lot of time if we start working on these today we can see better better results coming out in the next year and a half two years or so but in the meantime obviously you need to invest in education you need to invest in healthcare you need to invest in human capital you need to you know kind of develop your workforce as well which takes some longer times to materialize but if we are able to implement these medium short term long term policies uh, there's definitely a way out of it definitely i think um uh, thank you for you know such a comprehensive insight because i think transparency over uh, government spending that is uh, in many ways the need of the hour and i think along with we really need to restructure our country's economy from one that overspends on a few select institutions and you know excessively relies on foreign debt uh, with high interest to models that are more sustainable uh, noris thank you so much i think we're going to end it here and um i hope that we continue to watch closely as pakistan's economic situation sort of you know it continues to change and uh we hope to bring you more updates and um more dialogue thank you perfect thank you so much amul thank you